Well, before we open up God's Word together, I do want to pray. Different prayer requests that have come through as, for us as a church. I remember last week I mentioned that uh, our sister Maribel, that her brother was ill and things weren't looking good. And uh, he did uh, die on Sunday. And uh, we want to pray just for the, the Toro family, her, her uh, the Chevita family, uh, her siblings. And pray that God would just bring comfort to them and draw their attention to the cross of Christ. Um, we also want to pray for Pastor Ralph again. And uh, the Edmondses as they're on, on uh, vacation right now. And uh, so would you, would you bow your, your heads uh, with me as we, as we pray this morning? Father in heaven, we do thank you, Lord, that you hear our prayers. And God, as we, we come before you on behalf of these different requests, Lord, we, uh, we want to be those who mourn with those who mourn. And I know Maribel and her family are mourning the death of her brother. And Lord, uh, you know the weight that she feels. And uh, God, I pray you just bring her comfort. Lord, your Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. And I pray that he would do just that in Maribel's life. And for her family, Lord, may they look to the cross of Christ. Would they find hope for, in him? Would they, would they find uh, Jesus to be the source of their salvation, God. If they don't know you, may they trust in Christ. Lord, we pray for other prayer needs. We know that there are others amongst, amongst our church family who are sick. We pray for Josie's mother who's in the hospital right now. Lord, we pray for your hand of healing upon her, that you strengthen her body, that you give uh, just, uh, Ben, Josie, and Julia comfort and, and uh, wisdom as they care for Lalita. Lord, we pray for... Uh, our senior pastor, Ralph, with his family as they're out in Alabama. God, would they have a refreshing and relaxing time, God. Renew them, refill his cup. And Lord, I pray that he might be able to come back uh, later this, uh, this summer, Lord, rejuvenated and strengthened by you, God. Oh Lord, we, uh, we just thank you, God, um, for the way you care for us. And Lord, though our, these bodies are wasting away, um, we have hope, God. That there is more than just this life. We just thank you, God, for the hope of eternity that we have in Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. Well, I've been a big fan of the Olympics this summer. Uh, watching it most nights uh, kind of sucks me in. I don't intend to watch as much as I do. And then before you know it, it's 11 o'clock and they're saying goodbye. See you tomorrow. And it's like, man, i got to get to bed here. And it's been, it's been really fun to watch, see the records being broken, seeing um, these, a 15-year-old win a gold medal. It's, 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 been a, it's been a lot of fun. I was reading this week that NBC has said the highest rated, uh, most watched event that they have had, believe it or not, has been archery. And they think it might be related to the popularity of the Hunger Games. So all you Katniss fans, I'm sure you guys are watching uh, the archery as well in the Olympics. One thing that I really have been struck by as I've watched the Olympics is these, these team events. You know, gymnastics is a lot of fun watching the individuals, but then as they come together as a, as a country trying to win a, a group event, you're, you're struck by the burden that's placed on each one of them as they go to their event and try to execute in a way that, that gives them the best score. And as you watch these events, you really tend to feel bad for those who really just, just mess up. You know, their, their country is doing well. And it's their time to get onto the, the vault or the balance beam or whatever it might be. And they just totally blunder it. And it costs the team a medal. 
I mean, we, we've seen that happen. Uh, it happens in track and field a lot of times. If they're passing a baton, someone drops it. The whole team feels the result of it. No matter how well the other people ran, it's, it's lost. And that, that, uh, those repercussions of their, of their failure is felt across the board in the team, their country, others are watching. And in the same way, we see how our own decisions in life have repercussions on other people. When, when we make a sinful choice, a decision to dishonor God by what we think, what we do, what we say, it not only has repercussions on our own selves, but on people around us, no matter how private or how secretive we think our sin is. It has repercussions, just like a gymnast falling off a vault affects the whole team. Our sin affects the community. And sometimes we tend to believe this lie that it says, if my sin is private, it just affects me, it just hurts me. But that is a lie from Satan. And we're going to see today how a very private sin that happened in Israel affected an entire nation. Almost a million people were affected by one man's private sin. And I want us to take a look at that today from Joshua chapter 7 and see how this all came about. You know, as a church family, we've talked about our church vision most of these weeks here throughout the summer. And one of our points is that we would encourage one another to walk in holiness in community, together. We must remember that the church is not a building. This church could burn down tonight and we would still gather as a church next week somewhere else. Because a church is the people. And the church is often referred to as a body. Some people might play the role of a hand, another a foot, another the shoulder, and so forth and so on. And when we come together, we can do amazing things for God as His Spirit works in us. And just as we come together and do great things for God, as one person sins in the body, it affects the entire body. If you turn your ankle and you go off for a walk, you begin to favor that leg. And before you know it, you have problems in your back. And your back leads to problems in your neck because one part of your body is injured. And we see that one sinful decision of a, of a, in a church can affect the whole body. It can affect the whole body because we are together. Those who believe in Jesus Christ are part of God's family. They are the church. And we are one. And we see here on Israel, similarly, the whole nation was affected by one man. So we come to Joshua chapter 7 in our series, Strong and Courageous. And this series started out with a bang, if you remember. You know, God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. I'm going to be with you. Remember the promises he gives him? He promises his presence. I'm going to be with you. He promises to provide for him. God promises to strengthen Joshua and use him and work mightily through him. But Joshua had to make a decision whether or not to trust God. And he chooses to have courageous faith and step out in obedience. And we see in chapter 2 how he sent out spies into the land of Jericho. And they happened to find the one person in the entire city who would be sympathetic to what God was doing. And this lady Rahab would hide the, the spies. We see later on how God would divide up the Jordan River and put dry ground so the entire nation can pass into the promised land. We've seen how God brought them to Jericho, a fortified city with the doors shut. Tells them to walk around it seven times and shout and then the, for over seven days and then the walls come crashing down. 
Amazing, miraculous things were happening because Israel was walking by faith, being radically obedient, knowing that God was with them because He promised to be with them. It seemed like nothing could stop them. The first six chapters through the book of Joshua, nothing could stop them. God was bringing them into the promised land and they were ready to take possession of it. And then we come to Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. We're given an insider look on something that nobody else in the nation of Israel knew about except for this one person and potentially his family. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1 says this. After they conquered Jericho, but this conjunction is a contrast. God was, did a mighty work in chapter 6, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. If you notice, Achan is at fault. Israel is the recipient of God's anger. His, this one man's actions caused God's anger to be upon the entire country, the entire nation. And what we see is Achan's sin had enormous repercussions. He had repercussions on other people. There's repercussions on onlookers, people who are watching. And there's repercussions on himself. And that's the nature of sin. It affects everybody. So let's look at chapter two, verses, chapter 7, verses 2 through 6, and see what the repercussions on others was like. Verse 2 says, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. Now keep in mind here, Joshua has no clue, no clue about Achan. He doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. Remember, it's a private sin. It's secret. Nobody knew about it. Joshua didn't know about it. He went on as he thought he should go, and he sent out spies as he'd done with Jericho. He's doing with Ai. The spies come back in verse 3. Uh, they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. This is a small battle. This should be pretty easy for us. Ai is only a few thousand people. We can send two or 3,000 of our soldiers. They should have it conquered easily. Don't make everybody go up there, all the rest of our tens and thousands of soldiers. This will be an easy battle. In verse 4, so about 3,000 men went up there from the people. And then this happens. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Such a great twist happened so quickly. What was going to be an easy battle became their defeat. They were supposed to walk right in and instead they ran on out. In Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, before Moses died, he told the nation of Israel that when you get into the promised land, send half the people up a mountain called Gerizim and another half up the mountain called Ebal. And on the mountain of Gerizim, we want you to recite God's blessings in the covenant if you obey the covenant. There will be these blessings and those on the mountain would recite them. But if you don't obey God's covenant, on the Mount Ebal, there will be cursings that you are to recite. And among those curses is this, 
that God's people, when they go into battle, would run away. They would turn their backs on the enemy. And so when Israel goes to Ai, a weaker, smaller city, and they turn around and run, there's only one conclusion, but that God was against them. It must have been a terrifying thing. And we see in the end of verse 5, the hearts of the people melted. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember in chapter 2, when the spies were talking to Rahab, and she said, we heard about your God. We heard how he parted the Red Sea. And our hearts are melting. She says it twice in chapter 2, that the people of Canaan, the people in Jericho, their hearts were melting with fear because of the God of Israel. And now the tables are turned. Israel's heart is melting. Israel's heart is melting. Verse 6 tells us that Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth and on his face before the Ark of the Covenant until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. It's a time of mourning. But what we see happen next, we see Joshua praise. He, he doesn't jump to his Facebook and start complaining about how God is awful to him. He didn't start tweeting some gibberish or go to the store and find a, a, a how-to manual, a dummy's guide for conquering I or some self-help book. He doesn't bury his frustration in a bag of chips or go to his favorite hobby. Joshua, in the midst of his confusion, goes to prayer. And let that be a lesson for us. It's so easy to go everywhere but to the whom, whom we need to go to when we're struck with confusion. Now what we're going to see here in Joshua's prayer, it wasn't the perfect prayer. There, there's some accusing language here that Joshua had a wrong perspective about. But nonetheless, what we see is a very real prayer. And God wants us to come before Him with real prayers. Not try to sugarcoat how we're really feeling, but to lay bare before God. Say, God, this is how I'm feeling. And that's what Joshua does here. Look at verse 7. Joshua said, At last, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? That's how he's feeling. God, why even bring us here? So we can just die? Why, why do this to us, God? So there's some accusatory language here, but I think really this is just how he's feeling. This is how he's feeling. And then he goes on to say, Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. We could have stayed over there. But listen how he already lowers his standard. God promised them the land. And he's saying, you know what, if, if it's going to be like this, we don't want it. But there's some other questions Joshua needs to be asking that he's failing to ask here. In verse 8, I really appreciate what he says. He says, oh Lord, what can I say? You ever been like that in prayer? God, I don't know what to say, God. I, I don't even know what to say. He says, when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear about it. And they're going to surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name, God? So we, we see how Josh was confused here. He's at a loss for words. But at the end of his day, the greatest concerns are twofold. What's going to happen to us? The other nations are going to team up and they're just going to wipe us out, God. But the great concern there is that last statement. God, what's, 
What's going to happen to your name? People know that you brought us out of Egypt. They, they know that you parted the Red Sea. They know that you parted the Jordan River. They know that you brought down Jericho. And if we disappear, what does it say about you, God? People will mock you. And Josh was terrified. We see that Joshua's great concern here is that people who see the onlookers will see the result of Achan's sin, which Joshua doesn't know about, which is Israel's destruction, and they're going to mock the name of God. Joshua's afraid of it. We clearly see that Achan's sin affected Israel, and it infected the name of God. And we must be aware of that, that our actions say something about the God that we serve. So God talks to Joshua in verse 10. He says, get up. Strong language. He tells him again in verse 13, get up. Joshua, get off your face and start acting. What comes from God here is a sort of a rebuke and a charge to Joshua. He says, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I think God's words have a bit of a rebuke for Joshua here because it's like God saying, Joshua, I promised you this land. I promised to be with you. I promised to provide for you. And now you guys are running away from the enemy. And you're asking me, God, why is this happening? We would have been better off over there still. When the question he needs to ask is, what happened, God? Did, did we sin against you? Did we break the covenant in some way? And God tells him, yeah, you did. Before he asked the question. You broke my, they broke my covenant. In your midst, there is someone who, is took, who took the things from Jericho that were devoted to destruction and they kept them for themselves. God goes on to tell Joshua what he's supposed to do. He said, tomorrow bring everybody from Israel forward and separate them by tribe and then by clan and then by household and then by person. And you will see who the guilty offender is. So we see in verse 16, Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And they brought the clans and it was the Zerahites were taken. And he brought near the clan of Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man. And here's the person. Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. What was a private sin that Achan had done is now made clear to the entire nation of Israel. And Joshua in verse 19 says to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, God of Israel, and give praise to Him. And tell me now what you have done and do not hide it from me. Strange kind of language there. Here's the guilty offender found out and Joshua says, Achan, give glory to God. Give praise to his name. Tell me what you did. And what I think Joshua is doing here is this. See, God is faithful. He is a faithful God. 
faithful to bless his children with abundance as we walk in obedience. But in the same way, he's faithful to judge. And God is glorified either way because he is faithful. And here Israel have felt the repercussions of Achan's sin. And Joshua's saying, God will be glorified in this because we sinned against him. Achan, tell us what you did so that God can receive the glory even in his judgment. And then Achan comes clean. And what we see is Achan is thorough in his repentance. I'm a little bothered that he waited to the very last moment though. Why didn't he speak up when the tribe of Judah was taken? Was he hoping someone else might accidentally take the blow for him? Was he paralyzed with fear, knowing what the repercussions of his sin meant? Whatever the case, in verse 20, he gives an answer. Nathan answered Joshua and he said, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Called it what it is. I sinned. He recognized who he sinned against, the God of Israel. He's not pretending here. And then he goes on to say, And this is what I did. Verse 21, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them. He said, I saw them, and then I coveted them, And then what did he do? He says, I took them. He took them, he took them home, and he hid them in his tent. Joshua sends messengers out to go to his tent and dig up in the ground, and sure enough, there was the cloak from Shinar, the beautiful treasure of the world. Gold and silver, and he brought it to Joshua. And and Achan's sin is found out. It's clear what he did. But verse 24 shows what the repercussion upon Achan would be. And to our ears, this is a struggle for us to understand. Verse 24, And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and daughters, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Verse 26, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. But look at the result. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. Strong, strong conclusion to this story. And to our ears, we're wondering, why did this man get stoned? He came clean. He said what happened. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 25 and 26 tell us this. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire, as God's instructing Israel. He says, you shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. 
And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. God had set a warning in advance, telling Israel, if you go on and you covet and you steal the gold from these nations that you conquer, you will bring destruction upon you and your household. And this is why it is. God is a holy God. God is holy. And these other nations worshipped foreign gods. And by them taking of these possessions, they were aligning themselves with other nations. And God will faithfully judge wickedness. And in this story, Achan was the recipient of God's jealousy and God's anger. Ephesians 5, as we walk through Ephesians this past spring, verses 5 through 6, tell us that covetousness is equal to idolatry. When we desire something, when we covet for something, we long and yearn for it. It becomes the focal point of our attention, and that is idolatry. In Deuteronomy 4, it says that God is a jealous God, a consuming fire, and He will not compete with other gods. And Achan was testing God's jealousy. Jesus himself said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So this is how chapter 7 ends. If you think, had Achan not stolen this, we would have gone from the destruction of Jericho to chapter 8. But that wasn't how things went. But in chapter 8, after God, after uh, Joshua had stoned and put to death Achan, it says that God's anger had turned away. In chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. And God goes on to tell him God, that I'm going to give you, Joshua, I'm going to give you this city now. That my anger is turned away from Israel. And I'll, I have re, you've renewed this with me. It's interesting how God's, God's voice is clear here as they go back into I. His voice was missing in the beginning parts of chapter 6 because of the sin of Israel. And now God tells Joshua, I'm with you. Go ahead. Go into I. He gives him a battle plan. He says, go back, go up, send 5,000 people to the city to attack it. And 30 people to lay in ambush. And when those 5,000 are fighting, begin to retreat. The people of Ai will think, oh, we've defeated them again. And as you start running away, those in ambush would come and overtake the city. And that's exactly what happens. Ai is conquered by Israel. And the chapter 8 ends with Israel going up to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Renewing their covenant with God. Say, God, we know that if we walk in our part of this covenant, blessings will come. And if we disobey, there will be cursings. And God renews His covenant with Israel. As I mentioned already, had Achan not sinned, we would have gone from chapter 6 to 8. Fall of Jericho, fall of Ai, and we went on to 9. But chapter 7 happens. How does this happen? How does Achan get to the place where he would sin so clearly against God. 
Well, Jake, Achan says that he saw the cloak, that he coveted it, and then he stole it. And there's so many parallels with what James says about temptation. And this is important for us to realize the nature of temptation. James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We see that we are tempted when our own desires long for something. But those desires that go unchecked lead us to sin. And sin leads us to death. And that's precisely what we see here with Achan. See, Achan didn't sin when he saw the cloak and thought it was beautiful. So when we see the riches of our world, and we say, wow, those things are, are, are pretty amazing. To acknowledge it is not wrong, but to covet it, to desire it, to long for it, is where Achan went wrong and where we go wrong. See, as a country, we are so, uh, we've been given so much. We are a very affluent country. And materialism runs so deep. So when we look at Achan, we don't see too much different from our own hearts. And yet when we don't check the covetous yearnings in our heart for, for what's bigger or better or newer, we can fall in the same trap that Achan did. Thinking his sin was so private, and yet it had such great consequences. What I love about Achan is he doesn't go on the surface in his repentance. He doesn't just say, you know what, Joshua, I stole something. Sorry about it. That's true, he did steal something. But he goes deeper into the heart matter. He says, I saw it and then I coveted. And when God puts and shows us our sin, when he begins to convict us within, we've got to be real with God. We've got to acknowledge our sin, not just the action of our sin, but why we did it. Not only just saying, God, I'm sorry for the time I gossiped, or for lusting, or for using profanity, or for my pride. We need to say, we need to ask God's forgiveness, but to go a step deeper and say, God, why did I lust? Why did I respond pridefully? Why did I gossip? Because that gets to the heart matter. And that's what Achan did. He made clear what he had done. And we must be the same. You know, sin would come at us in different angles. It might be materialism for you, but it might be lust for another. Or greed, or jealousy, or fear. And we need to see sin for what it is, and push it away, and by God's grace, have victory over by the power of His Spirit. Killing sin. Walking in holiness. Because our sins do affect the community. Sometimes the flesh and the Satan would like to lie to us and make us think that our sin will be easy to clean up. That the person that you hurt will just forgive you and you, you can just go on then. Or that, you know, God is gracious. He'll understand when I say this or go there or do this. But indeed there are repercussions. There are repercussions on others. That's the first point I want you to remember. Our sin has repercussions on others. Sometimes the sin of pornography tends to be thought of as a private sin that happens between you and your phone or in the secrecy of your bedroom. 
or in your house or in your basement. But the reality is that pornography has repercussions on other people. See, it's an industry that is growing because of the internet. And it is indeed supply and demand. And when we fall into that trap, it fuels an industry. It affects other people then because of that. It affects other people and that it skews our perceptions of people of the opposite sex. Pornography has repercussions on others, on your marriage, on your friendships. As secret as it might be, like Aiken was secret, it does not remain just there. Secondly, sin has repercussions on onlookers. People watch and they see what happens, see what we do as those who call ourselves Christians who follow Jesus. And they will make conclusions based on it. The world is watching us. And our lives can be a bad testimony to the world. If you don't think the world is watching you, ask Dan Cathy. That's a name I didn't know two weeks ago. He's a CEO of Chick-fil-A. He made a statement about his view of, of, of biblical marriage that is between one man and one woman. And ever since then, Chick-fil-A's been on the news, called all sorts of things. People are watching. And I'm not saying Dan Cathy was wrong for stating what he stated, but it tells the world is watching us. People are looking. And keep in mind, people look at our actions. If we who claim to be Christians have our lives line up in that way, and they also watch how we interact with people who are not believers. And what I appreciate about Chick-fil-A and, and Dan Cathy's statement is that he states what he believes. And it is indeed what the Bible teaches. And we as believers need to be grounded in the truth. The world will take offense to it. But let them not take offense to our approach to the truth. Let us not be offensive kinds of people. Let us be those who love in our delivery of truth, even though the truth can hurt. See, the world is watching us, and it was watching Israel, and it watches Good News Bible Church. And what you do, your life, reflects the God that you serve. Joshua says, God, what do you do for your great name? God's name is his reputation. Just like when you buy a Mac, it's got a great name. You expect it to work, and to work for a long time. Because it's got a good name. God's name is the greatest name. Just this uh, past week, we were having our family devotions. And there's a part, a question and answer part, a catechism, if you will. And one of the questions it asks is, why, what, what were you created for? And the answer is, for God's glory. And that goes back to the Westminster Confession. We were created for God's glory. But the reality is, when our lives don't reflect the God that we serve, it says something about God. And that's what Joshua was, was afraid about. And let that be on our minds. Say, God, help me walk in holiness. Help me walk in a way that tells a dying world how awesome the God I serve is. And keep in mind, we're going to fail. You're going to fail. People are going to look at you and they're going to call you a hypocrite because you fail. And the reality is, yes, we're going to fail. And yes, when we sin against God, there, there is a hypocrisy in our life. But what doesn't make us a hypocrite, though, is that we recognize we're frail people. 
We confess our sin. We walk in humility. We know that I'm going to fall. I'm going to mess up. That doesn't make us a hypocrite. What makes hypocrisy is when we say one thing and do another and pretend like it's, there's no difference. See, people are watching. A world is watching. And when we sin, it has reper- repercussions on others and on onlookers. And thirdly, when we sin, there's repercussions on ourselves. When I think of Achan's sin, some of you might have been asking this question. Why did he still have to die? You may have been asking that question. He repented. He was, he was honest. Why did he have to die? Did God not forgive him? Because if God forgave him, he wouldn't have died, right? Not necessarily. See, sometimes in our mind there is this wrong dichotomy that if God forgives, then there are no consequences. But that's not true. Nowhere are we seeing that God doesn't, doesn't forgive, but there still were consequences to his actions. Think of King David, as Cohen preached two weeks ago, when he saw Bathsheba and brought her to his home and got her pregnant. It didn't matter how many tears she or he pray, uh, had, how much they prayed, she was still pregnant. And there are still consequences to our sin. And God is a forgiving God when we repent. But there still are repercussions on others and on ourselves. If you have a child and they act out of line and you tell them, if you do this again, you're going to get a time out. And they do it again and you tell them, all right, come with me. And they start crying. They're pleading. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. And you might say, I, I forgive you. I forgive you. But there's still a consequence. And it's the same with God. There's a consequence for sin. God is holy. He is just. And as a just God, He needs to discipline sin. He hates sin. He has wrath towards sin. And for Achan, he had to receive God's wrath. And he died for it. And this is where God and His mercy is so clear. Because... The penalty for sin has always been death. And Achan was brought into a valley, but 1,500 years later, there will be one who goes up a hill. And Achan's sin was brought before him, but 1,500 years later, there will be one whose sin was put upon an innocent person. And at that cross, Jesus Christ went up a hill, and he took yours and my sin The penalty for sin has always been death. But the reason we don't get stoned today is because that penalty was paid for. God has satisfied His wrath. And that's why you don't have to suffer that that wrath. Because Jesus satisfied it on your behalf if you trust in Him. This is the good news here. And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ today, That wrath is not satisfied. God's wrath is still directed toward you as it was toward Achan. And that's just a reality of a holy God. But as a loving God as well, He sent someone to die on your behalf. And don't even leave today as one who is at at odds with God, hostile to God. Believe as one today who is at peace with God, who has received God's answer to your sin problem. At the end of our message today, we're going to have prayer counselors come forward. And if you're ready to make that decision, we ask you to come to be prayed with.
to receive Jesus Christ as the one who died on your behalf, who has forgiven you of your sin, and it could give you a new life through Him. And there are still others of us here today. We know this truth. But God is calling us to walk in the light of it. See, if we know that God has sent His Son to die in our behalf, let us walk with the kind of gratitude that reflects that. Let us walk in a way that honors and pleases God. You know, there are two separate extremes with this. Some people, they, they see that Jesus died for them, and they, they cognitively understand it, but they, they really take it for granted. They have this mindset of, God, I know I'll, if I sin, you're going to forgive me, so I'm going to go and steal that bag of chips. Or I'm going to go and, and, and gossip about that person. But the reality is, that's, that's, not, that's not how God's grace is. It's not to be trampled. He is a holy God and He is not mocked. But on the other extreme, there are those who know that God forgives, but they can't, they can't seem to receive His forgiveness. They let their past hang over their heads. And they, they, they act as if God's wrath is still toward them. But if you've trusted in Jesus, He has satisfied it. He has satisfied it. Well, I pray that we would see this story of Achan, that we would know that our decisions do have repercussions on others. When we're prideful in our hearts, and we, we look at other people with an arrogant mindset, it's an internal sin, but it affects the way we interact with people. That we see that every d- sinful decision we make has repercussions on others. And it has repercussions on onlookers, people who watch us. And it has repercussions on ourselves. But with that, that Christ is the answer for salvation. He has died on our behalf. He has paid the penalty to give life. Preach the gospel to yourself, to your children, to your friends. For the, we, can't, we can't live a day without it. Let's pray. Oh God, this story is extremely sobering, God. God, we've all coveted. There's not one in this room has not, who has not done what Achan did. Not one of us. And oh God, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Jesus. That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Thank you Jesus for dying for us. Oh God, I pray that there are any, any here today who have not trusted in Christ, that they would do that today. And Lord, if there are others today who need to renew their commitment with you, God, I pray that they would decide to do that today, Lord. Lord, your word says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wrong way in me and lead me in the way that's everlasting. And God, search our hearts even now as we're still before you. And may we not take sin for granted. But repent thoroughly, God. Clinging to the cross where forgiveness and hope was purchased for us. We glorify your name, Jesus. We glorify your name, Almighty God. And confess that there is none like you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Would you stand with me as the prayer counselors?